So the I like to call these reflections rather than teachings. The way of encouraging you to contemplate, to reflect, not just to intellectually comprehend the words and agree with them or disagree, but how do the words and the the teaching in the scriptures, the words that I use, affect you? The old words have an effect on us, and uh, and that's what we call mindfulness, where you're aware. So, like modern education is all about form, acquiring knowledge, uh, views and opinions uh, about history, about science, about grammar. The languages are all forms conditions, they're all phenomenal, and therefore their very nature, we tend to live in a, in a society that clings to forms, and they might be very good forms, or maybe not very good forms, but the clinging to form is, needs to be investigated, to reflect upon it. Sometimes people interpret this kind of talk as you should let go of everything and not cling to anything, which is a doctrinal statement, you know, that Sumi, you know, using the Buddhist teachings in the scriptures as kind of doctrinal position, to let go of the world, to let go of everything in, in all forms, uh, you know, so that you're, you're not attached to any forms at all. <clears throat> But that's not reflecting. It's if you believe that you should let go of everything, then that, that is a belief. That's not reflecting on that belief. The belief that in Buddhism you've got to let go of everything is, uh, you know, is a, quite a common belief uh, that you can assume logically from reading the scriptures. But the Buddhist teaching is a reflective teachings. They're not doctrinal positions that you take. So in Buddhism, it's not a doctrinal position that we're that we're attached to to our form, our our way of interpreting the scriptures, uh, our our tradition, and uh, and that you know that even though that is possible, it's not what uh, the the path that the Buddha encouraged. So reflective or contemplative is opening yourself to the way things are, not just 
picking and choosing what you like to believe or don't believe, what you agree with and what you don't agree with. That's how we're educated, to pick and choose, to take sides uh, about what's right and wrong, good and bad, and how things should be or shouldn't be. So modern society today in every country is quite divided because of uh, people don't have different beliefs, have different interpretations. In the Buddhist world, there's so many different forms of uh, uh, forms of Buddhism, and then mindfulness practices are are uh, available now through all kinds of uh, opportunities. Uh, mindfulness is the kind of word of the time. So form is very important to to uh, to reflect on the forms, even though there they might be very good forms, right forms, righteous forms, true forms. Forms are what we call sankharas or conditions. They're phenomenon. They're created. They arise and cease. All words, all language, is is a create are created forms to communicate about the formed world that we live in. When we try to talk about the unformed, the unborn, uncreated, you know, then the mind goes blank. You can't. There's no words for that. You can only use a. A negative suffix, the un, the unformed. But the unformed is recognizable. Mindfulness is unformed. It has no form. At first, then, uh, you know, when we're teaching beginners meditation, you start with forms like mindfulness of the breath is a form, because that's what everybody's used to. Or the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha established the First Noble Truth on the ordinary, common human experience we all share of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. So the form is uh, comes and goes. You don't suffer all the time, or or uh, you know forms. Uh, you know, they can, like suffering can be uh, divided into all kinds of categories. But generally, the Pali word dukkha is, is good enough to convey the, the, the message. So we call that suffering. So then, in samatha meditation, you 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 use the form to concentrate on the form so you you're you know you're you're it's a, it can be an object of sight or feeling anything that has a, or a sound and so you this way we we go to an object of the senses not the senses themselves so when we when we meditate on the breath, we're going to the function of our body's breathing is like this, and uh, so that that we're sending our 
consciousness through the through the form of the of our physical body to be the witness to the object, which is the breathing of one's own form, the body. And that, that of course, leads, you know, if pursued, that leads towards tranquility. And eventually leads to awareness of the, of the unformed. But then there's also what in uh, Theravada Buddhism, what we call vipassana or insight meditation, which is investigating. So we have the these different each of the four foundations of mindfulness, but the dependent origination for noble truths and all these these sutta teachings in the Tripitaka are, are in you to be investigated. They're not positions to take uh, in terms of the words themselves. So oftentimes we're asked, Buddhists are asked, in, you know, in the Western world, uh, do you, you don't have a God. You don't believe in God. And in, in so many religions, modern religions, uh, it's necessary to believe in God. And then we're put in a sometimes embarrassing position because uh, they say, no, we don't believe in God. But then they, then they, uh, that's the, the immediate response if, if you're attached to, to Buddhism as, a, as opposed to a, a religion like Judaism or Christianity or Islam. But then we ask ourselves, what do you mean by God? And now that's reflective, isn't it? It's, you know, what is, what do you mean by that? Do you, uh, what, when you say, do you believe in God? When you ask me that, I don't know quite what you expect me to believe in. So this is a kind of opening to, to investigate what is that simple English word, three letter word, God, what is it really? in terms of experience. And of course, it has a strong effect for people who are theistic. It's an absolute condition, necessary condition, that they live by. And so they believe the, the, the forms that Christianity or Judaism provide, oftentimes without investigating them or reflecting on them or contemplating them. Now in uh, the Buddhist, Buddhism, most forms of Buddhism are not denying God. It's not about we believe there's no God at all because we don't know what, what that is in terms of the reality of here and now because this moment is our reality for all of us. Whatever you're feeling or thinking at this moment, physically or emotionally, mentally, you know, this experience is always here and now. So in terms of like the many discussions, like in the 
in the UK, there's interesting intellectual discussions about God and and uh, theism and atheism and whether you believe or don't believe. But even taking a position as an atheist is still a belief. It's a, you don't believe in the in the, somebody's view of what God is, or you can just deny the whole uh, perception that God is an illusion, and we don't believe in that. And that's all thought, taking a position to deny rather than affirm. So with mindfulness, we're actually not denying or affirming, but observing. Being a witness. And this is contemplative. This is reflective. It's like this. Like when, when we say the word God, uh, you know, that has an effect on us emotionally. Or do you believe, you know, in, in the scriptures, there's different gods. They talk about... Uh, according to the Indian uh, tradition of that time, uh, you know many different gods that are mentioned in the in the in the suttas, but they're all put in the position of conditioned phenomena that arise and cease. So the the basic the, one of the most important reflections to use. In, uh, in vipassana, in insight into the way things are, is uh, to all conditions are impermanent. So this emphasis on anicca or impermanency, anicca is the Pali word for impermanent. And so it's not a belief, it's not that, that we suddenly decide because it's in the suttas, the scriptures, that, that everything is impermanent, so we believe that. But it's an investigation, because when we reflect on just our own thoughts, our own memories, our emotional habits, our own bodies, you know, they're very impermanent. They're changing. They have no stability. You know, the most stable form is uh, the, the physical body the human form. And emotionally, we're affected by the weather, by what people say to us or don't say to us, and and, and we have uh, various views and opinions about right and wrong, about morality and truth and false and so forth, so that, that, that these words, you know, are very, uh, have powerful meaning. But just, listening to some YouTube videos about modern American politics. There's so many views and opinions on the right or on the left that people are willing to die for. And that, that fixed belief, uh, clinging to these beliefs without reflecting on clinging, leads us to conflict. Because, you know, if you don't agree with me and I'm attached to my view, then then uh, you're you're my enemy. I make you into an, an enemy, a threat to to me personally.
So the reflective position is very clearly pointed to in the in the Theravada school of Buddhism. You know, is about form and formlessness, like when we when the Buddha was passing away and his disciple Ananda said, "What are we going to do without our teacher?" This points to you know. Uh, Ananda was very attached to the form of the Buddha, the physical person, Gautama the Buddha. What are we going to do without you? When our teacher passes away, dies, is gone. And the Buddha responds according to scripture, as I leave you the Dhamma Vinaya. So the Dhamma is formless. It has no form. And Vinaya is all about form. So Vinaya is about action and speech. It's not about belief or anything. So the, the Vinaya, as we, as we try to live by it in this particular tradition, is a, is a form that is very conducive towards opening up to the way things are. So we become alms mendicants, dependent on the goodness and generosity of of the lay community for our basic requirements: food and shelter, robes, medicine, these basic requirements. And that puts us always in a relationship. It isn't like we become, you know, just. Uh, freeloaders of the society, but generally uh, it brings forth the generous impulses amongst the lay people, the city people, the villages, to offer something, something that you need, something that is basic and necessary for survival. So that's the, the offering uh, giving the lay community the ability to, to do something, uh, some act of generosity and kindness. So the Vinaya is all about, so we don't, we can't go around begging. We can't, we're not supposed to intimidate people into giving us, uh, certain kinds of food that we prefer. So we're, we're, we eat whatever is, according to the idea, whatever is offered in the alms bowl or offered at the monastery. So this gives us a position to, to give, have so much time to reflect on the Dhamma teachings of the Buddha. So the Dhamma teachings are pointing at the formless Dhamma, ultimate reality. So there's not, since you can't see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or create images of the Dhamma, it has, that's where, you know, but it's here and now. And, of course, we're conscious here and now, if we're all conscious forms in space, here and now, that's the experience. But when we're caught in our 
position, egotistical positions, views, and opinions, we always feel separate because we conflict because we have different forms. We have male, female forms. We have young and old and and black and white and different views and opinions that can influence us in how we we experience the present moment. But when we open ourselves to the way it is, it's then the only words that that come to mind is it's like this. And so these words are not doctrinal. It's not saying, you know, telling you how it is, because at this moment your experience is not going to be the same from one person to the next, from one monk to the next. But it's going to be like this right now. You're feeling something, you're having some emotional reaction to what you're hearing me talk about, and you can be aware of it. It's like this. It's not about whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, but it is the way it is. And that knowing of the way it is is mindfulness. Sati, Sampatanya. Awareness, clear comprehension, open awareness, mindfulness, conscious awareness, these words are all mean the same thing. So consciousness at this moment is unitive for all of us. We're all conscious forms which has no no consciousness has no form in itself. You know, so when modern scientists are trying to objectify consciousness and define it, uh, you know, they're looking for an object, something to to focus on that has, you can define as consciousness. When the reality of here and now is that we're, we're the consciousness itself. You can't find yourself by looking for it through words, concepts, or objects. Because you are that. And that consciousness is not personal. It's not my consciousness as opposed to your consciousness. The feeling can be very personal. What I think and feel at this moment, it can be very personal in what you think and feel is very different maybe from what I think of here. But the consciousness that we share, we begin to recognize because it's here and now, apparent here and now. So this is what you begin to realize through this reflective, contemplative style that the Buddha encouraged. So form, you know, is reflecting on form and space. You know, forms couldn't exist without space. So forms are dependent upon space. And space couldn't exist without consciousness. 
So consciousness is at the kind of the base, the, the substratum, the reality of here and now. And then space gives the occasion for forms to arise and cease, to manifest and disappear. So we're investigating this. It's a kind of modern science, or maybe it's a very ancient science. Investigating the here and now. Now, so many in meditation looking, trying to get something out of it. So we all start, uh, usually we start with that. We, we're feeling uh, distressed, emotionally distressed, and, and, uh, Worry, obsessed worries and personal problems and we want peace of mind so we we practice uh, meditation so that uh, is how we start but the point of the teaching is in in the emphasis and the vipassana or insight into the way things are we investigate so what is consciousness here and now? Space you can perceive. If I ask any of you what space is, you can just point to the, the place you're sitting in, the, the room itself. What you see outside the window, all space, whether the sun and moon and stars are in space. But consciousness you can't perceive. There's no way you can perceive it because that's what you are. So when you're looking for you, what you are, you're always looking for an object to define yourself in some definite way, some form uh, that you desire or you think will give you the approval you need for life or make you successful in, in the world, an important person. So when we realize that consciousness is the unity, universal unity, and that we share that with all creation, with the animal world, with the insects, with the ticks, with the mosquitoes, the butterflies, the birds, that the sun and moon and stars, the planets, is all in the same space and space then is not seen as like my space. You know, I can claim that this is my space. I've heard people do that. <laughs> You're in my space. Get out of my space is a way, way of telling somebody to go away. But, but, <laughs> but space, you can't own it. But you can perceive it just by the visual uh, facility. But what you can't perceive is perception itself. Because consciousness is a perceiving mechanism. So we begin to trust in that perceiving mechanism of awareness it's like this. And then the conditioned world 
the society we live in, whether it's monastic or lay, we, teaches us that all conditions are impermanent. So all conditions are impermanent. So we actually have the insight into that. It's no longer because the Buddha said that and we believe it. It's that we investigated. Is there a condition that is permanent? Fair enough question. So when um, I first started using the Four Noble Truths as my basic reflective teaching, when I was a Samanera, I, I had this insight, if all conditions are impermanent, is there anything that's permanent? So I made a kind of koan or conundrum to challenge, is, is the Buddha right? Is everything impermanent? Is there something that's permanent? And of course, then of course you you know you're you're using the the senses that what you see here, what you smell, taste, touch, think. Your emotional habits arise and cease according to conditions, and uh, you know then you uh, you see all these things change and it's constant inexorable changingness when you try to hold on to some position, some view, some concept, some experience, some memory, you know, how long can you really sustain it? You know, like trying to be happy. How long can you decide to be happy and sustain happiness through clinging to the perception of happiness? So we have, you know, we try to you know, be happy and and enjoy life and and live, you know, live, love, laugh, and be happy and all that kind of of uh, language. We can try to do that, but is that possible? Can life be on the experiential level that we're involved in in, in these forms? Can they be all happy experiences? And we know that it's impossible. That all ha- what we cling to and call happiness is very illusory, very impermanent. And then we talk about uh, unconditioned love. To find the one meant for you that will be your love mate for eternity is a beautiful idea. But can you expect somebody to be lovable for eternity? Can are any of us lovable all the time in terms of what we call personal love or love that's directed towards an object? Even the things you love you get tired of. So what does sustain itself that we don't create is uncreated and unborn is consciousness. And then that's what we really are. When you realize that for yourself, then that's the end of suffering. 
because you you know what the end of suffering is. It's always here and now in conscious awareness. The feelings, the emotions uh, will, you know, try to sustain them. You know, deliberately try to hold on to depressive views and opinions. You know, with the intention to hold on to them. You know, they're changing. And when we observe the way things change and cease, they all cease in consciousness. Because they arise in consciousness and they cease in consciousness. So the third noble truth is called Neroda or the end of suffering, which is apparent here and now. And that's to be realized, each one for themselves. So it's not about a belief in Neroda or Nirvana or the end of suffering, because we think of the end of suffering as that the body doesn't feel pain or uh, things don't affect us anymore as individual persons. Because we still live in a society with the people that are going to affect our lives. They're going sometimes very positive, sometimes negative. And so in a Sangha, as every monk here can verify, you're living with with uh, the people, the same people who have the same, who have uh, committed themselves to the vina, the discipline, the same discipline, the same tradition, the same external forms. But then we, personally, we react differently to the forms. And so we can become very angry with other monks or jealous or frightened or intimidated because that is the nature of the ego. It's a very easily intimidated condition that we cre- that's created. It's not permanent. The ego is not a fixed uh, condition. It shifts and changes according to other conditions. But then uh, the whole point of this, this tradition is to observe that, to be the witness of what we call puto or the, the Buddhist name, be witness to the way it is. So when we offend each other intentionally or unintentionally, it's like this. And as you sustain your awareness is like this. You're not taking a position, a righteous position, or an egotistical position, but you're letting something be what it is, and it ceases. And then you have insight into the cessation of a condition. Because everything ceases in conscious awareness, if we allow it. But the habit tendencies that we have are all about clinging. Clinging to, you know, our sense of personal identity. 
clinging to traditional forms or being untraditional, clinging to modern ideas about mindfulness or what's right and wrong. So clinging is really not the, the problem, it's ignorance of clinging. So the basic problem is summed up with ignorance of Dhamma, the formless reality that we all are, we all share, that is unitive. When we begin to, to abide in that awareness, then we, we, you know, then we don't suffer. We're not creating, we're not taking sides or positions or trying to define ourselves or judge ourselves or anyone else. So then people, you know, we can't help the way we are on a conditional level. We all have different genes, different DNA, you know, so when a baby's born, you know, it's a conscious form. Consciousness is universal. And the form of the infant is in consciousness, rather than the consciousness enters the baby's body at birth. An infant form, and even in the womb, is in consciousness, rather than becomes conscious at birth. Because the mother's conscious, and and the 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 infant, the embryo is con- is conscious, because that's the way it is. Consciousness is here and now, and it's not divisive or it's not in the mother and and not in the infant or you know. There's so many views and opinions about abortion and when when somebody becomes a a person, a, a separate person, uh, uh, you know, a living being, and so forth. There's so many views and opinions about uh, the, sub, the political fraught subject of abortion in the United States. But when we're aware, become aware, and abide in pure conscious awareness, then that's also, you can call it universal love because it includes everything. It's not, there's no hatred in it. There's no critical conditions that we attach to about the forms. We're aware of them that the forms can only be what they are in the present moment. Whether we like them or don't like them is, is a personal reaction to the forms, but if our abidance is in awareness, then we're not victims of our personal habit patterns, our own emotional habits. So that's universal love, because it's unitive. So did Buddha teach about love? You know, is a common question we get. (laughs) Because, you know, modern... Western world very much uh, loves the, loves to love, <laughs> and, and because loving somebody is always such a joyful experience. But can it be sustained if it's just based on the present 
on a person that's lovable in the moment. And so, you know, we find people, you know, modern, there's nothing to hold marriage, married couple together anymore. Divorce is, is quite uh, acceptable in modern life. Where when I, when I was a boy back in the thirties and forties, it was, I remember divorce was, was considered, say you, said somebody was divorced, you kind of saw them as sinners. Because that's the, the way I was brought up in the religion. So the ideal marriage is to love for eternity, for, in sickness and in health and so forth, which is very idealistic. But we don't know what love is, really. Because romantic love or personal attachments to somebody can easily fall apart, can easily change according to other conditions that we can't control. So then we, we begin to see the word love in more like the Christian concept of unconditioned love, because love is what holds things together, was unitive. Hate is very separative. When you hate somebody, you separate from them. When you love them, you feel a unity with them. But it depends on one's own limitations about how we're attached to forms and ideals and positions and traditions and beliefs. And so this is a, a challenge to all of us who are, you know, in the, in the United States, we, we're brought up with the American vision, the dream, the American dream, the democracy, all people are equal and, and freedom and fairness and justice. And then we see in in daily life, all kinds of injustices, unfairnesses, biases, positions that people take, and uh, and conditions that change, then we become cynical as we grow older, because we've been told one thing, how it should be, but the way it is is not how it should be. The way it is can only be the way it is right now. This this moment can only be like this. And so then we begin to reflect on that. What is stable in the changing conditions that we're experiencing now? And that's conscious awareness. And so when we abide in that, when we make our home Lung Pa Chara referred to it as our real home, conscious awareness. When I began this uh, reflection today, I pointed to the, the gate to the deathless is open, Aparuta De Sangha the gate to the deathless is open. This is a 
proclamation made by the Buddha at enlightenment. So what is the deathless here and now? Is it some kind of, you, you're lacking it or you, you miss the point of what is deathless at this very moment for all of us is awareness. Conscious awareness is stable in our real home where the conditions of our own emotional feelings of the moment are, will change. You know, the different uh, views and opinions we have that we're attached to will be different, changing conditions. But when we recognize the Dhamma as our refuge, then the all who hear this, those here listening, trust in this, trust in awareness, because that's what you really are, a pure awareness, rather than these flawed conditions that you identify with out of habit, not out of choice, but out of habit, out of conditioning. So that's why in modern society, you know, like in with the modern technology and... Uh, you know, and the United States is a nice country to live in. You know, so if, and so you, you know, you have, you know, you can see it in terms of how it should be, but, and it's not going to be how it should be. It, or it's the way it is at this moment, but it'll change. And that changingness isn't maybe not be what we want or regard as right, but it will change in some way or another. And that's, the way of all conditioned phenomena is to change. And that's the way it is. So there can be no, you know, permanent democracy and permanent fairness and justice on the worldly level because those conditions are impermanent. But what you can trust what you can trust, no matter what happens, is in awareness. And that's a modern word, mindfulness. Uh, many teachings on mindfulness in different traditions. Lay teachers and monastic teachers and so forth are all te- are emphasizing this, this word, mindfulness or awareness. And that's a good thing. Because, uh, you know, a few years ago, that was not an important word in our vocabulary. It was all about, you know, mindfulness, be careful when you're driving the car, be mindful, you know, when you're crossing the street and that. So, we're, you know, we're, we have the word, English word mindfulness is common enough. But it wasn't given much uh, emphasis as it is now. And and so this is fairly recently, in the past 30 years at least, this word has become important to us. But what what is a mindfulness? Is it just mindfulness driving the car or crossing the street or here and now, mindfulness here and now? So at this moment, be mindful of, of the, 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 the 
the feeling that you have, the physical feeling of the body sitting for a long time, or uh, what pain is like or discomfort is like, is like this. Even in your abidance, in awareness, you're still going to feel pain, physical pain, because that's the nature of the human form. It's a pleasure-pain condition. Just like your eyes, you know, you're going to see beautiful flowers and then they change into autumn and then into winter. Flowers are dead. The leaves are off the trees. It's like this. And I remember when I first moved to England from Thailand, where Thailand is almost like a perpetual spring, you know, then... So then you... And in in England, in the wintertime, all the leaves are off the trees, so the trees are barren. And I began to notice you know, that I, I liked trees with leaves on them, and I thought barren trees without leaves were ugly. And that was like conditioning, like beauty depended on leaves being on the trees. And then I started reflecting on that. Is that really my limitation of, of beauty as always bound to, some, to springtime images? Because England in the springtime is very beautiful. But in the winter, it, is it still beautiful? Or can I change my way of looking at it? And that's possible. Because barren trees can be quite beautiful. And the barren, and the gray days, the gray skies, and the bleak winters, are they ugly? You know, you can, the English love to complain about them, but, but is it really that bad? And then for a monk, I remember, uh, thinking how convenient English winters are for meditation, because there's nothing kind of, Springtime is hard to keep inside. You want to go out and look at the daffodils or the crocuses or the violets and things like that and, and enjoy the beauty of spring. But in wintertime, you don't want to go out in the cold. And our barren trees ugly. If you're fixed, your perception of beauty is on trees with leaves and barren trees are ugly. But you can change that just by reflecting and letting go of your limited view of beauty to receiving, you know, receiving the forms against the sky, the barren trees, the knots on the trees, the branches are like this. And so it's changing from, is, is it suffering to live in England in the wintertime? You know, you can suffer from it if you're so inclined. But you don't have to if you reflect on the way it is. So reflection gives us, you know, is where wisdom manifests in us. And even though you might think you're not wise, that's a personal view. You know, like some people believe I'm wise and they're not. Well, that's a belief. 
you know, that's what they believe. So they project wisdom onto somebody like myself or Ajahn Janto. And, uh, and then we see ourselves always with our limitations. So when you ask somebody how they really feel about themselves, they say, well, you know, I suffer a lot. I have a lot of worries, anxiety, and, and, uh, and all like that. That's what they identify with, with worry, anxiety, depression, with failure, with not being what you want, not getting what you want, life not being what it should be. You know, there's so many depressing perceptions we can create and that we are quite conditioned to do so. Like modern life is very critical. You know, we're educated, we're conditioned to, to criticize, to say this is better than that, this is right, this is wrong. That's how we're, this is conditioning. That's not ultimate reality. That's not about Dhamma. Absolute reality. All conditions cease in the reality of Dhamma, apparent here and now, timeless. And when that really, you know, at first as you're reflecting like this, it's an encouragement for all of you. To, to trust in your awareness, begin to abide in it, to do, not be the critic of yourself, not to endlessly find fault with your weaknesses or whatever you see is not quite right or wrong about yourself, but to observe. Be the puto, the witness to the ego. It's not about getting rid of the ego so you become egoless, getting rid of desire, but understanding it, learning from it, from desire. And so the, the teachings are, you know, are pointers in that direction. All the uh, sutta teachings in the Tripitaka are not doctrinal positions. You don't have to believe everything is impermanent. You can find out for yourself whether that's true or false. What is when we say sapay dhamma ananda? All dhamma is not self. What does that mean? What does dhamma mean to to uh, somebody who's not brought up in a Buddhist tradition? What is, you know, the ultimate reality? We have absolute reality. Our English translations. But what is absolute reality here and now? You know, is it just an abstract use of language to describe in kind of metaphysical terms something you can't define or see or hear, smell, taste, touch or think? Or as we reflect every day, apparent here and now. Absolute reality is apparent here and now. And what is apparent here and now is consciousness. Not the contents of consciousness. Not what you're thinking. But when you begin to let go of thinking, 
reflects on the space between words where there's no thought or on the questions you ask where your mind's thinking mind stops, doesn't have the immediate response or answer to the difficult question is like this. You begin to be aware of consciousness without thought, without form. Is consciousness a thing? Is everything really impermanent? And in terms of sensors, sensory experience, it's a thing. So we, you know, without senses, consciousness couldn't, can't see, can't hear, smell, taste, touch, or think. So the forms are all sensual forms with eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, which, you know, is the opportunity to, to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, to think to feel pleasure, pain, beauty and ugliness, right and wrong. We create languages, belief systems, religions, all that to try to to point to that ultimate absolute reality. God then is become is absolute reality. Then is God Dhamma? Well you can see you can you know God is just a word, Dhamma is just a word. They're both sankharas in themselves. But the ultimate reality is not a word. So it's not about grasping the word Dhamma and believing in something called absolute reality, but realizing absolute reality is here and now, timeless. And that's the end of suffering. So I offer this as a reflection. Sadhu, sadhu.